if you try to open up a resort in this country and you say, okay, come to our resort, the door is closed for a week, we're going to offer unlimited drinks, there is no police force, and the workers are from a third world country, they wouldn't let them go in business. And yet that's exactly the environment of a cruise ship. The cruise lines take the legal position. They do not have an obligation to investigate crimes. The FBI, when they are notified, really don't want to take these cases on and generally don't take these cases on. It's an issue of worldwide crime that has never been addressed properly. Even today, Tim, people are going missing and they say there is no video. I find that hard to believe. The girl was 15 years old. In one hour, they gave her 10 drinks. She went to the railing, threw up, and fell overboard, and that was it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. On this edition of the program, we are venturing into some uncharted waters as we welcome Kendall Carver, founder of the International Cruise Victims Organization, for a discussion on the troubling trend of disappearances and felonious crimes that are committed aboard cruise ships, as well as how they are subsequently covered up by the cruise ship industry. Over the course of the conversation, Kendall is going to revisit in tremendous and heartbreaking detail how the disappearance of his daughter aboard a cruise ship in 2004 led him on a lengthy search for answers, which was continuously thwarted by the cruise ship industry. Additionally, we'll discuss a number of similar cases where people have gone missing or have been murdered aboard cruise ships, and we'll learn about how the cruise ship industry uses legal loopholes, its influence in Washington, as well as the isolated nature of these cruise ship journeys to avoid taking responsibility for the fate of its passengers. This is a deeply disconcerting edition of the program, which will likely leave you flummoxed and outraged at the under-discussed crime wave on the high seas that has been uncovered by Kendall Carver's International Cruise Victims Organization. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Kendall Carver, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Upon graduation from the University of Iowa, Kendall Carver started in the insurance business with Washington National Insurance Company in Evanston, Illinois. In 1977, he was promoted to president and CEO of Washington National Life Insurance Company of New York and held that position until his retirement in 1995. In 2001, he founded and currently serves as chairman of the Executive Men's Group. This group is made up of 25 active and retired senior executives located in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Following the disappearance of his daughter, Marion Carver, Aboard a cruise ship in August 2004, Kendall began a lengthy quest for answers, using legal means and private investigators. On January 1st, 2006, he founded a group for victims of cruise line crimes. He currently serves as chairman of this group, International Cruise Victims Association Incorporated, 
which now has members in 24 countries around the world and has recently passed major legislation in Washington to control crimes on cruise ships. His website is www.internationalcruisevictims.org. Pretty simple, all one word, internationalcruisevictims.org. And with all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 22nd, 2012. Kendall Carver, talking about the International Cruise Victims Organization on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And I think you are going to be remembering this episode for quite some time. It is chilling, it's frightening, and it's really beyond the pale of what we usually talk about here on the show. This isn't paranormal, this is stuff that could happen to anybody and and stuff that really could affect people when they least expect it, when their guards are particularly down. And I'm talking about crimes on the high seas, crimes on these cruise ships. And our guest is Kendall Carver, and he has a really sad and tragic story about how his involvement in advocating for cruise victims began. He is the chairman of the International Cruise Victims Organization, and he has testified before Congress four times regarding what really is a tremendously serious issue that is these crimes on cruise ships that many, many people don't even know about or they just hear about it in snippets. I mean, it's getting into the media now more and more, but it really hasn't burst onto the uh, public consciousness just yet, and I think it's going to in a, a very short amount of time, and that is really a lot having to do with the work of Kendall Carver and his work advocating for these international cruise ship victims. So welcome to the program, Kendall. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and uh, really I think people are going to be captivated by what they hear. Well, Tim, it's, it's my pleasure to uh, take time today to uh, discuss this subject. Now, we usually start out with the bio, the background, and, of course, you really have uh, just, a, a, as I said, a tragic and, and horrifying story that, that you know, began your involvement in all this. So let's just start there and sort of bring people up to speed and give them the background on, on you know, the story of, of Marion Carver and, and, you know, Kendall Carver's involvement in all this. Okay, well, uh, I'm the father, father of four daughters. Uh, Marion was the oldest daughter, lived in Cambridge. And uh, in August of 2007, her daughter called. Marion was divorced, so she had joint custody with her daughter and, and her former husband. And Marion and her daughter talked, I don't know, daily or, or very frequently. Huh. And her daughter called one day to say that Marion uh, wasn't returning her phone calls. And uh, so, uh, you know, at that point, I guess I wasn't concerned. I said, well, let me, let me check it out. And so we started uh, calling Marion and weren't getting return phone calls. It's like the last week of August of 2007. And after, uh, I don't know, three or four days, we went to the Cambridge police and filed, uh, started the process of filing a missing person report on Marion. Yeah. And, uh, once we did that, then the uh, Cambridge police got involved. And uh, one of the first things they did is that they went to her apartment and, uh, went in, uh, checked it out. Everything was fine except, uh, Marion wasn't there. There was no, 
notes or any indication where she was, but she wasn't in her in her apartment. So they started an investigation, and after a couple of weeks, they were able to gain access to credit card transactions. And these credit card transactions, one of them showed the purchase of a cruise from Seattle to Vancouver. Now, Marion uh, was 40 years old, fairly sophisticated, very attractive. She'd taken many cruises uh, by herself and with her daughter, and she was old enough. She didn't tell us everything she was doing and when she was doing it, but that wasn't a particular surprise. So based upon uh, the Cambridge Police determining that, I called uh, Celebrity Cruise Lines, which is really part of Royal Caribbean, like the third week in September, and I said, gee, was our daughter on your cruise ship? And they got back in a couple of days and said, well, she she was, but after a couple of days didn't use her room, and that's not uncommon. And uh, they didn't know whether or not she'd gotten off the ship. And uh, so the next question we immediately asked them, well, uh, is there any video or anything concerning Marion? And they said, well, uh, we're into this three weeks. We have already erased the video. And there's been no review concerning Marion. So that left us, I guess you would say, hanging uh, of what what was going on with Marion. There had been no uh, reports filed with the FBI or anything. So we decided, we well, actually, we made a decision to move forward. And the first decision was, we wanted to speak to somebody on that ship that had seen Marion. Yeah. Now that seemed like a pretty, you know, uh, easy request. And, uh, and that was the steward. So we hired a firm called Kroll and Associates, which is an international detective agency to get involved at that point. Uh, we went to a law firm in Boston to gain the legal power to act on behalf of Marion and started an investigation. So Crowland Associates contacted the, the cruise line and, and asked if any reports had been made by the steward or anyone, and they said no, been no reports made concerning Marion. And then after five weeks, the uh, cruise line finally made a report to the FBI and uh, really said nothing in that report. So they weren't aware of it for five weeks. And once they were aware of it, they did nothing. <laughs> they, uh, we would have hoped that they'd gone on that ship, yeah, and and interviewed the steward or made some inquiries, but as best we could determine, they did nothing. So that is why we had to hire uh, our own detective agency. Yeah, no one's taken the initiative to to, to do anything about this except you. Guys. No, and and that turns out to be not an uncommon practice. That in effect, the the FBI, when they are notified, really don't want to take these cases on and generally don't take these cases on. So anyway, we, we started a process and uh, Kroll and Associates did their best to set up an appointment to talk to the steward. And they were unsuccessful in, in getting an interview with the steward. So then the uh, 1st of November, they sent detectives on the ship that Marion was on. And uh, he, they were greeted by a uh, uh, someone from risk management in Miami, plus uh, their chief outside legal counsel, <laughs> and uh, weren't allowed to talk to anybody on the ship. Uh, they were told that there was no video 
review concerning Marion. They'd already disposed of it and uh, really came away from the ship with no information. In fact, they'd been stonewalled uh, by the very people that we thought were there to help us. And when you start off, we assume and assumed that risk management was there to help us. Well, risk management, I, I've got to tell your listeners, is not there to assist you. They are there to protect the cruise lines. Right. They're managing the cruise line's risks. Right. They're, they're not there, uh, but you start off on the assumption yeah. they're, they're there to help you. So we're now in the November. We uh, weren't able to get any uh, information from the stewards since they wouldn't uh, provide him. They wouldn't let him talk to the detectives. So we took legal action in the courts in Massachusetts to depose the steward because he was, uh, we wanted to yeah, talk to him and get information from him. Right. And um, finally in January 16th, I think it is, of 2005, we finally were able to depose the steward. Now, when we took the court action in uh, Massachusetts, then we had to take that court action and go to the courts in, in uh, Florida because if somebody reads their cruise line ticket, you have to take legal action in Florida, not in Massachusetts or Iowa or wherever you're from. Right. So that made uh, it made it necessary for us to hire another law firm. Good. So now we're up to two law firms uh, just to speak to the steward and taking court action both in Massachusetts and then in Florida. Well, in the deposition of the steward, he indicated that he had reported Marion missing daily to his supervisor. And his supervisor indicated, just forget it and do your job. At the end of the cruise, he said, the steward said to the, uh, to his supervisor, he said, well, what do I do with the stuff in the room? They said, just put it in the bag and, uh, put it in my locker, in the supervisor's locker. And we later found out they just gave it away. It all disappeared. They took one item, a large purse that Marion used to carry some of her clothes, put it in storage with her name, social security number, and got rid of everything else. So now all of a sudden we realize in January, from the very beginning, that they've been lying to us. That in fact she had been reported missing. And in fact they had taken every step to uh, inhibit any investigation of what happened to Marion. Well, we were stunned. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that had to be the worst day of my life. <laughs> when I realized after five months, and uh, you might be interested in knowing, uh, Tim, that to get to that deposition mm -hmm. cost $75,000. Oh, this I'm, yeah. I'm hearing this story, Kendall. I'm getting outraged. I'm just getting, I can only imagine how you felt and feel. I mean, I'm just getting, the more I'm hearing this, I'm just getting more and more angry at, at, at well, how this all unfolded. It's just unbelievable. Well, it, it, uh, it was incredible. And most people don't spend $75,000. Most people just, don't have 75000 <laughs> Yeah, just to, just to get the one person on yeah. that ship to find out that everything we'd been told had been a lie at that point. 
Uh, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. In that okay. deposition, we also asked him about the video. And their lawyer interrupted the uh, hotel manager and said that uh, we count that as privileged information for national security reasons. In effect, he said, I'll let the uh, hotel manager, who on the second day we deposed, answer the question. And the answer was he didn't know anything about the video. But their lawyer had interrupted his answer, saying we count that as privileged information for national security reasons. That's just weird. Can they even invoke national security? I mean, well, they did. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, and I'm I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit. Okay. Uh, a year later, the head of Celebrity Cruise Lines contacted us because the case was starting to get a lot of press, mm-hmm. and invited us to meet with him. He said he'll come to Phoenix or we can come to Florida or whatever. So we met with Dan Handerham the CEO of Celebrity Cruise Lines. We asked him about the video. His answer was the tape was broke. So now we have it. It was erased. Number two, it was national security. Number three, the tape was broke. Well, guess what? In 2008, they finally admitted that they had a video, that they'd kept it for several months and reviewed it. We'd subpoenaed that information from them. Uh, so, I mean, here, here's the one thing. I mean, if they had a video and it showed Marion jumping off the ship, hey, that's the end of the story. Right. I mean, right up front. But in fact, they continuously lied to us about video. And even today, Tim, people are going missing and they say there is no video. I find that hard to believe. I find it hard to believe that anybody could go off a cruise ship without a video. They only pull it out when it's to their advantage. Yeah. But they're still saying that to people. Oh, there's no video. person just disappeared off a cruise ship. Oh, sorry we looked, but there's no video. Uh, so anyway, that, that it's jumping ahead a little bit at that point. But anyway, after nine months, uh, we got certain material from Royal Caribbean. We subpoenaed just tons of material. But we got three emails which if you go to my Senate testimony, you can see, in effect, in the third week of September, showed them communicating internally, setting up the cover-up of her disappearance. It showed that they had talked to 15 crew members who worked with that steward to make sure that nobody had gotten to that steward. They had a separate email that the uh, hotel manager is giving to risk management saying, I've talked to this guy three times and told him, this is very important. Do not say anything. And then there's another memo how they dispose of her goods. So in other words, right up front, they knew exactly what had happened. Yeah. Uh, well, so when all of this is going on and we realize we were clearly uh, dealing with a, with a cover-up, uh, a book came out in June of 2005 called The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. Mm-hmm. And it was written up in a full-page ad in uh, Business Week, so I went down to the bookstore and bought it, brought it home. And when I got to the part on victims, it said the standard operating procedure was cover-up of crimes, that that's just the way they operated. They get the person involved in the crime. In this case, they felt it was the supervisor. They get them off the ship. So nobody can interview them, and that's their standard operating procedure. 
Well, when I read that, I realized what I was reading was exactly what had happened to us. Yeah. So all of a sudden you realize, gee, we're not alone. <laughs> we're just part of a uh, of a bigger picture. Absolutely. A much vaster and, and uh, troubling picture. And that, of course, it, I presume, obviously led to the creation of the International Cruise Victims Organization to try and raise well, awareness yeah, about that. Yeah, I, I, at that point we hadn't got that far yet. Okay. But we made a decision in July of 2005 to go public. Now, here's somebody who had disappeared a year before, and it's an old story, but we kind of intellectually decided maybe we'd take the story public. So starting September, October, uh, we started exploring that, and I think through the work of God, uh, we knew one person at CNN, and he, I, I called him, and he was doing something called... Uh, Katrina with Anderson Cooper in September of 2005. So he really kind of put me off. And uh, But all of a sudden, two months later, he called and said, Ken, I'm going to fly to Phoenix, and we're going to do the story of Marion. So we ended up, uh, Tim, being on the first Anderson Cooper show. Wow. Which was a major, I mean, to go from nothing to the first Anderson Cooper show the same week uh, the Arizona Republic became aware of the story, ran a front-page story on Marion. Uh, and then CNN, uh, the, the producer did something else, which turned out to be uh, extremely significant, is that there was this case of the honeymoon couple in Connecticut. George mm-hmm. Smith, gone missing, was getting a lot of press. So Chris Shea, the representative from Connecticut, was starting to get involved with that, and so they suggested I call Chris Shea. Uh, and in fact, and that put us into the first congressional hearing in, in December of 2005, uh, that discussed two cases, our daughter's case and the George Smith case. And it was, uh, CNN leading us to Chris Shea and Chris Shea holding a congressional hearing. So, that was the first congressional hearing I attended. Now, no victims spoke at that meeting. Just, you know, the congressional people, they had the Coast Guard, the FBI, the cruise lines, and et cetera. But after that meeting, uh, Tim, I came to the conclusion that there was a major problem with this industry yeah. on crime. So, and I also concluded I couldn't solve it personally. So we contacted uh, some other families that uh, we were aware of, the Smith family in Connecticut, uh, Gene Scavone, who lost a son who lived in Connecticut, a fellow named son Michael Fain, who both of his parents disappeared off a cruise ship. And on uh, January 1st of 2006, we formed a little group with four people, four families called International Cruise Victims Association. And from that start, Tim, six and a half years later, we now have members and friends in 24 countries around the world. Wow. Uh, and it's indicative of how this message has gone, uh, you know, as, as it's become known. This morning, uh, I listened, got a link to a uh, news story out of uh, Australia. A woman's just written a book on it. But it has just gone all over the world. Right, right. It's a tremendously riveting 
phenomenon, I guess you could say. I don't even know really what the words for it. It's just so bizarre, and the more you hear about it, as I dug into the International Cruise Victims website, it was just, you're bombarded with these stories and just how, as I said, I get so angry hearing what happened to your daughter, and you keep reading them, and you get more and more outraged at, at, at these stories. Catch people up to speed, because I've personally never really been on one of these cruise lines. I guess give give people sort of an idea of, you know, how, because they say these are like cities on the sea, and there's thousands of people. Give me an idea of generally, you know, what the basics of all this is. How many people are on these ships, and how, and, and I think it's critical to point out that the crew is usually like half the number of people you know, you had an additional amount for quite a huge crew. So I guess, you know, just sort of give us the, the baseline information on, on this cruise industry. Yeah, well, the, the typical cruise ship, and, and I want to use your analogy, that it's like a city. Mm-hmm. It is like a city. I mean, they, they've got the cooks, they've got the people that do the laundry, they've got all the ingredients you would need to run a city. The captain is like the mayor of the city. He's the guy in charge. But you know, Tim, they're missing one item. That is an independent police force. Yeah. The, the cruise lines take the legal position, and it's in my Senate testimony, they do not have an obligation to investigate crimes. So you've got, you've got a city with unlimited drinking and no police force. So that gives you a setting of, of what, and, and it's, it's a group of strangers. Now what is the typical uh, cruise ship? Well, I would say a few years ago, the average ship might have been 2,000 passengers, might hold 2,000 passengers, plus a 1,000 crew members. Now, where are the crew members from? They're from the Philippines, Indonesia, India. Uh, they pay them minimal wages. I'm, I'm saying minimal wages because they flag the ship in countries, third world countries, where the work rules allow them to pay almost... Uh, uh, you couldn't possibly operate a company at the money that they pay these crew members. Uh, so you've got, you know, 2,000 uh, passengers, 1,000 crew members, and this goes back a few years ago. But now they're building ships that hold 5,500 passengers. Wow. And another 2,500 uh, crew members. <laughs> and and these crew members... Uh, the, they, they come from a different background, different demores. They're on those ships for nine months. They're paid minimal wages. They work them seven days a week, and their mores are different. Exactly, yeah, yeah. All the ingredients, you can see why this is such a problem, because all of the ingredients are there for bad things to happen. I mean, you've got, you know, a massive amount of people. You've got no police force, no jurisdictional, you know, control over all this, and then people from all over the world who... And who live a, a, a transient lifestyle, in a sense, or some sort of bizarre lifestyle where you live on the ocean for for months or years at a time. I mean, that just changes the mindset of people. So it's 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 troubling. Yeah, and and to assume that all those crew members, and even the passengers, that uh, they're all uh, uh, nice people, <laughs> is, a, is an assumption that uh, if if you think that, you're you're thinking wrong. Because statistically, you're going to have people in there that uh, will create problems. And uh, and that's exactly what has happened. And there's nobody policing it. And the crew members know that if they commit a crime, they're not going to go to jail. 
They just take them off the ship at the next port. And then they go to work for another cruise line, which is incredible. It's it's unbelievable. It's just absolutely unbelievable. That's why I really wanted to get you on this program, because the more I heard about it and the more I read about it, it was like, this is, you know, I need to dig more into this. This is uh, insane. I noticed, too, uh, that we'll get into some of the other specific cases that uh, you've got on the website, but it seems, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, the jurisdictional issues. That seems to be a big problem, and as what... You know, you said what happened with your daughter. It's like these crimes are are covered up, and the length of time to report someone missing. I mean, if they had it their way, they, if you hadn't asked about where, if their, if your daughter was on that ship, they never even would have gotten in touch with you. No, no, they wouldn't have. Uh, if we had not spent and the Cambridge police able to trace her to that cruise ship, she would have just vanished in the world. Yeah, I mean, which is rather incredible. Exactly. I mean, people could go on these ships and they, you know, they come home and no one ever finds out, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's happening. Yeah. And, and I can only imagine, you know, we talk about the the people that you've heard from. There's, there's probably countless stories out there where no one did the legwork or no one really followed up or there weren't, you know, witnesses on the, you know, with the people. And, you know, their stories are just lost. Oh, absolutely. And... uh that, that uh, it really became the second phase of international cruise victims, and we can talk about some of the uh, victims uh, now or later. But uh, after that first hearing, uh, Tim, Chris Shea decided to hold another hearing, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of starting to put in place some controls over the uh cruise lines for crimes on cruise ships. Now, that was in March of 2005, and I was asked to testify, and five other victims testified at that congressional hearing, and each one had their own tragic story. Uh, But we did something, Tim, that was the smartest thing we ever did. Mm -hmm. If if we had just sat there and told our stories, of what had happened to us, that would have been it. But we came together as a group, and we had only been formed a couple of months at that point, and came up with a 10-point simple program to improve safety on cruise ships. Yeah. Like background checks, reviewing the video, real, really basic stuff. Exactly, yeah. And And we presented that. And frankly, that caught the Congressional Committee off guard because all of a sudden here's a positive thing to do and it caught the cruise lines off guard. And I never will forget at that meeting I went up to Michael Cry who represented the cruise lines at that point and I said, hey Michael, and, and frankly this is the first time I'd ever been in a hearing. I said, you got to work with us. And the cruise lines like to publicize that they have a zero tolerance for crime. In 1999, the four CEOs of the major companies, and I think they're still uh, the CEOs, signed a letter. We have a zero tolerance for crime. So they, the uh, cruise line industry loves to repeat it. We have a zero tolerance for crime. That's our policy. Well, uh, if you have a zero tolerance for crime, that says to me there's nothing you wouldn't do to prevent a crime. Right. If somebody comes up with 10 suggestions, you say, hey, these are great. We'll do them. Well, after that hearing, 
nothing happened. What was his reaction when you said that to him? I, I think he uh, <laughs> kind of looked at me and said, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, honestly. Yeah. No, I know. I, yeah. I, well, he's making millions and millions of dollars probably. And, you know, yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, he, uh, he, and uh, that's a long story with Michael Cry. I could go on and on by that. But a year later, uh, we had another congressional hearing. And there the power shifted from the Republicans to the Democrats. So uh, Elijah Cummings was the chairman of the committee. Chris Shea was, uh, because his Republican had lost the power that he had, but a Doris Matsui in California, uh, one of her constituents, uh, Lori Dishman, had been raped. So this uh, uh, Doris Matsui got involved in it. So she really pushed in the House to have another hearing. So anyway, we then had our second hearing in the House of Representatives. And the thing that came out of that uh, is that the cruise lines were ordered to meet with us, Tim, mm -hmm. to go over the 10-point program. In other words, what could we all voluntarily agree to? And so they were ordered to meet with us. Well, frankly, that is the last thing they wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, was to meet with this group of uh, victims that has no money, no paid staff, and that's still the case today. Uh, but but what we do have, Tim, is two things, passion of victims and tremendous intellectual expertise in a whole wide-ranging different uh, levels of area. Mm -hmm. So that we have extremely... Uh, I guess you would say experts in all of these areas. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that summer, Tim, they finally agreed they had to meet with us because Elijah Cummings said, we're going to have another hearing in six months. I want to know what you can work things out. Yeah, exactly. Because everybody looked at the 10 points, pretty simple things. Well, they don't want to spend the money and they don't want to, you know, they don't want the responsibility of, of, of what they would uncover, I'm sure, by taking no well they, they didn't really, well they said they have a zero tolerance that, that was a uh, public relations statement not a true statement so anyway finally they agreed to meet like in july of 2006 because they had to so we had i don't know three lawyers there a college professor and three members of the executive committee we met in washington and we're all paying our own expenses to go there mm -hmm. uh and they had head of security, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and the head of the trade association, CLIA. And so we spent four hours going through these various items, well-documented, and uh, they, they ended up saying, well, these are great ideas. We'll study them, we'll review them, but they wouldn't commit to anything. Of course, yeah. But uh. they did something else when they agreed to meet with us, mm -hmm. which was most amazing is that on the day they sent the letter to us agreeing to the meeting that they really didn't have, they sent out another letter. And it's in my uh, testimony, and it's addressed to all passengers and their families. Oh, my goodness, all passengers and their families could be millions of people. Yeah. <laughs> That's the world. Right. So we're going to have this meeting in Miami. We want you to come, bring your family. We're going to talk about all the great things we're doing for security. Well, uh then over the next few months, I started getting tremendous pressure to invite our members to that free meeting that they were hosting in uh, Miami. Yeah. So I asked them uh, two questions. I said, well, who did you invite to the meeting? 
seemed like two reasonable questions right. to ask, and uh, never could get an answer. Well, about two weeks before the meeting, I was threatened with a lawsuit by a certain party if we didn't invite our members. I, in other words, I was threatened with a lawsuit if I didn't invite our members to their meeting. That's weird. Well, I went to a lawyer. He said, Ken, that's not your meeting. That's their meeting. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, it's really playing hardball. And fortunately, I, I don't know if you saw, I've been around for a while. I was CEO of a company in New York City for 18 years, insurance companies, and I'm not intimidated. Mm-hmm. But I finally decided the week before the meeting, hey, maybe I better go to see what's going on. What are they doing? Mm-hmm. So myself and and another member of the board, son Michael Fain, we went to the meeting. Guess what? The only people they wanted there were our members. Right. It wasn't to the world. And it was designed to try to pull them away and split them off from ICV. Uh, incredible move on their part. Uh, so anyway... Uh, you know, I can stop at this point, but we, we then went back in September and had to report in another congressional hearing that nothing had been accomplished. And uh, at the end of the hearing, Elijah Cummings finally said, hey, we've had now four hearings. Yeah. And nobody's agreed to anything. So he said to the cruise lines, you got 90 days. Tell me what you're willing to do. What are you willing to do Right. for safety? Well, 90 days later, Tim, they came up with a nice 32-page glossy report with a nice cover and everything. Guess what? They didn't agree to anything and would not agree to anything. I mean, what what an opportunity they had to do some of this stuff. Yes, this is maddening that they're dragging their feet. I mean, you said you'd stop, but I want to hear how this thing unfolds. So, I mean, I, just, I, I can't believe that... It's just, like I said, it's just maddening. Uh, well, they, they did something else in the report. Mm-hmm. On the first page of the report, they indicated that the FBI had testified in September that the crime rate on cruise ships was 0.01%, like nothing. Mm-hmm. On the top of the next page, in bold letters, they said the FBI testified the crime rate's 0.01%. And then they go to the fourth page, and they repeat it. Well, I had been at that hearing. The FBI had never said that. Right. So finally, after the first year, I wrote the FBI. I said, hey, here's what the cruise lines are saying that you testified to in Congress. Well, the FBI wrote me a letter and said, we never said that. <laughs> that, that was not true. In other words, they, but unless somebody calls them on these points, Tim, right? you, you accept it. Uh, but one thing ICV members don't do, and I... Yeah, is that we question everything. Right, right. Well, you so can't trust we, these companies now. It's obviously you can't. <laughs> well, uh, they, they agreed to nothing and, in effect, lied what the FBI's testimony had been. I, I don't know what more you could do wrong, you know, in trying to protect your position. Instead of doing the right thing, they did everything they could to avoid the rules. So when we got to the Senate hearing then in June of 2007, I used that, how they had misrepresented the facts to the to a congressional committee. And at that meeting, they had a Dr. Fox, who I believe lives in Boston, who they paid to come there to justify their low crime rates. And he was not on the dais. He was not testifying. 
But when I got done going through just what I've said, he interrupted the hearing and said to Senator Kerry, I want to say something. So Kerry finally said, okay, you got 15 or 30 seconds. And his comment was, I don't know how the cruise lines could have said that. It's clearly not true. And how they could have used that in their report. So here's their expert witness, <laughs> come to defend them, this saying exactly what they presented was not true. So anyway, that, that kind of gives you a history of the congressional sessions. But, I mean, we're, we, when we go up to a congressional session with the cruise lines, they got their lawyers, oh, they yeah. got the experts, they got their chief lobbyists, uh, and we're just a group of victims. The only thing we have going for us is the truth. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Un, just uh, just riveting and unbelievable stuff. Uh, let's get into some of these cases that are discussed on the on the website. I tried to just sure. uh, take some of the ones that stood out, particularly to me. But really, I think, and, and people should realize here at this point, we're not just talking about disappearances. We're talking about murders. We're talking about rapes. We're talking about uh, attempted child abductions. We're talking about offshore uh, robberies that, that are very suspicious and, uh, you know, make you wonder if they were facilitated by nefarious uh, crew members. So we're not just talking about people going missing. We're talking about a real myriad of uh, unsavory crimes. And, Absolutely. And the one that uh, – and, and one of the stories I think that people may have heard about, especially our international listeners – is this uh, Rebecca Corium story, because it's gotten a lot of press, uh, not just in the U.K., but throughout the world. Uh, so I guess talk a little bit about that one, because I'm sure, sure. I'm sure, sure. you're well-versed in that. In that well, uh, the Corian family, uh, their daughter, who was, I think, 21 or 22, worked on a Disney cruise ship, and uh, literally vanished off the cruise ship, uh, as my daughter vanished off the cruise ship. Mm-hmm. And and as I said earlier in our conversation, uh, no video. Well, that that should be impossible. Right. That there's no video. So anyway, we started working with the Corian family a year ago, and we recommend any victim uh, join with ICV. But a lot of victims, if if a crime has occurred, they've lost somebody or a sexual crime, they don't want to go public with it. They want to kind of hide in the closet from them. But the Corian family was different, I guess, as I'm different and a lot of our members are different, in that they said, hey, this is not right. We want to know what happened to our daughter, and uh, we want to help change the system. Right. And and so they, uh, and this became in England and the U.K. and Europe a major story that's been played over and over and over. Mm-hmm. This morning, an Australian uh, television show, the case was mentioned. Right. Uh, so it it's a case, and, and there are other cases like this, but a lot of times the families, you know, to go on television or to talk to you and talk about my case or they talk about their daughter's case, that's not easy. Exactly, yeah, yeah. To, to talk about these things, but the Corian family... Uh, has gone public and they're being supported by their family and they're also being supported uh, a year ago victim support of Europe agreed to work with ICV so in England there's victim support of the UK 
which is probably the largest victims organization in the world. And because of our earlier contact with Victim Support of Europe, which is the umbrella organization of all the victims groups in 28 countries, uh, they took on the Corian case. And uh, they have been extremely helpful because they're professional, they're well-known, and so they have been working with the Corian family. We've been working with the Corian family, and and we hope that as a result of that, that there'll be a movement in Europe that laws be put in place to protect the passengers of these countries. Yeah. If somebody leaves the U.K. on a cruise ship, they're no longer under the laws of the U.K. They're under the laws of the uh, Bahamas or Bermuda or wherever the ship has been flagged. And that's what the Corian found out, is that one lone policeman in I don't know, either Bermuda or the Bahamas, I forget which one, was put in charge, made a one-day trip to L.A., greeted the boat, didn't interview anybody, came back, and that was the investigation. Yeah. And, and that's exactly why the cruise lines have put their ships of those jurisdictions. Uh, and so the goal is that the, the police force of the country, where that person is, the UK or the United States, they lead the investigation. And not some third world country that's going to do nothing, has no capability of doing anything. And, and that's the, the box that the Corgan family has gone into. So that story has been picked up I mean, every newspaper and the BBC and yeah, it's everywhere, and everywhere in England and the United States. This morning in Australia, as Marion's case, the George Smith case, became public knowledge, uh, I don't want to say it's helpful, but to have a case like the Corian family in Europe has been essential. Yeah, yeah. And, well, it's really raised awareness. Well, and and it's it's done some other things. <laughs> well, it's opened up Europe, too, as a place where this can be discussed and, and you know, uh, you may not run into a lot of the problems you have, uh, you know, with American legislation. Yeah, well, we're, we're just starting that process. In April, I was invited as a stakeholder to a meeting in Brussels of the EU on passenger ship safety. So I literally made a one-day trip to Brussels from Phoenix. Wow. I uh, got there on a Monday night, had to leave Sunday night, time difference. I got there Monday night, went to this all-day meeting on Tuesday, and uh, came back Wednesday. Uh, but for the first time, the victims were there at the table of this meeting. Now, that, that was a whole different flavor for them. Cleo was there. The cruise lines were there. And I think they were shocked when I walked into that room. But as a result of going to that meeting, I... Uh, I was able to arrange a private meeting with the EU a few weeks later back in Brussels, plus the International Maritime Organization in London. And two weeks later, I went back to Europe. I'd been invited to speak to the World Society of Victimologists in The Hague oh, wow. uh, in uh, May. But before that, we went to London. I had a meeting in Parliament with uh, some of the legislators. And I guess you would say we're planting the seed at this point. I got to give you credit, Kendall. You're a bulldog on this, man. I mean, I don't blame you with, with what happened to you, but I'm just amazed at how tenacious you've been about this. So, well, you know. I, 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 I'm not doing it on my own. I, mm-hmm. I think I need to stop at that point. I'm the chairman of International Cruise Victims. A woman named Jamie Barnett 
is president of International Cruise Victims, and she lost a daughter. Uh, and we've got a board made up of people who've been raped, lost parents, and it's a whole group of people. Yeah. Uh, it's not just myself. And, I, you know, it started off with just four of us, but that's dramatically changed. Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of people involved. So on the trip to Europe when we went back in May, Jamie Barnett was there uh, in, in the presentations. Lori Dishman, who was raped, was there. And, uh, you know, it's just not a small group. And, of course, the Corian family. And, and, and to the Corian family, I think being part of ICV, if you're a victim, the last thing you want to do is, is feel like you're all alone. Well, the Corian family knows they're not all alone. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what we offer victims, that there is a support group that is active. One of the issues we face is resources. Uh, we have no paid staff, limited funds, and as we move out around the world, you know, we obviously need resources uh, to, to carry on this. But so far, we've been given what we've needed to get. And hopefully your show will make more people aware of it. Maybe some of them will be willing to actually help us out. And I might just say we've talked about our website, but our website is www.internationalcruisevictims.org. Yep, yep. And there's links all over the website for it. So yeah, well, that, that's able to great. Get to it so that, sure. that's where they need to go, and they can see the stories. And daily, we have a woman that posts stories from around the world daily. She's been doing it for seven years. And she was an attempted rape victim. And uh, she got married a few years ago. And I said to her, I said, gee, maybe we need to get somebody to do this while you're gone. She said, no, I'll find a computer while I'm gone. I mean, that's the kind of dedication of the people that are working with ICV. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It sounds like they all have really good reasons why they're so passionate about this. They've been wronged by this industry in in a major way. Talk about the Amy Lynn Bradley story, because I thought that was pretty interesting. And within the context of that story, it's mentioned, you know, that she goes missing on the ship, and uh, they they don't even want to make an announcement uh, that she's missing. They don't want to put pictures up uh, that she's missing. They they sort of use the facade of not scaring the other passengers to, to justify not Really doing their due diligence as far as trying to find these people, you know, in the, in the now, even. You know what I yeah. mean? You're not even talking about like weeks and months later trying to get to the bottom of it. It's like, like, like you said, the steward reported, uh, Marion missing and they didn't do anything about it. And that, 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 that's, you know, belied here or, or, or that's supported again here in the, in the Amy Lynn Bradley story. Yeah. Well, the Amy Bradley story is one of the first known victims, uh, that really got some press. And the Bradley family believes that she's still alive. That in fact they they made a port call and and she vanished and they wouldn't keep the ship, they wouldn't, you know, do all the things you just talked about. And that story today, uh and it, I don't know how many years ago, ten years ago or more, was probably one of the first stories to really come out of of issues of People disappearing on cruise ships, and in her case, you know, they, they stopped, and Amy wasn't there, and they wouldn't hold the cruise ship, they wouldn't do anything, and uh, you know, but the, the family has indicated they think there's sightings of Amy, 
So was she kidnapped at that point? Uh, you know, the, the issue of people becoming slaves. Right. Is a major issue. And I don't know if I've mentioned this so far or not, but over the last four years, about every two weeks, somebody goes missing off a cruise ship. Wow. I mean, you're not talking two a year. We're talking, and, and that is kept by a professor, uh, Ross Klein. And if you, people go on our website and look under Cruise Junkie, click on it, you get keep getting the updates of the people that go missing. And uh, Amy would be, you know, probably one of the first on the list because people weren't keeping track of that stuff. People are now starting to keep track of that. And if somebody goes missing or a crime occurs on a cruise ship, people have access to the Internet. That information is getting off that ship. Right, right. And, and going public. And that's the biggest thing that we have in moving our process forward is the press. And the Amy Bradley story, I think last year a major story was done on it. Uh, and and the hope is that she's out there someplace. Uh, my wife wouldn't uh, accept that Marianne was gone uh, for years. And I'm not even sure where she is today because she just disappeared. There's no, there's no answers. Right, right. That makes it that, – that's the – like I said, we're dealing with a myriad of uh, of, of sordid crimes here, and, and these disappearances are particularly vexing because you never get the answers. It's not just like these mysterious murders that happen. It's also these disappearances that leave the victim families in the dark forever. It's it's uh, not a good place to be. Yeah, yeah. But but let me uh, talk about you know we ended up passing legislation. And one of the requirements of the legislation was that if somebody goes overboard on a ship, that a device, if it's available, be installed on that ship to immediately detect the individual going off a ship. Yeah. Well, last summer, Coast Guard put out a request for proposals for such a system Mm -hmm. on the assumption they wouldn't get any. Guess what? Three companies stepped forward with, (laughs) with proposals. Yeah. For these kinds of systems. Guess what? The Coast Guard has yet to contact those companies. <laughs> Not I even mean, contact them. That's that. <laughs> what? No. What is, like, this like, is maddening, Kendall. This is absolutely maddening to hear this stuff. It's just. Well, well they, I mean, they, they say, well, we have our procedures and, and, and et cetera. My goodness, somebody says I got a system to detect these things. Uh, you don't wait years to, to contact them. And, and there's a, there's a side effect to that. We've done Freedom of Information Act requests on what the Coast Guard spends when somebody goes missing on a cruise ship. Yeah. We have one, it's over $800,000. Another one is over $100,000. So here's two cases. Person went overboard. They never found them. Spent $900,000. And yet somebody comes up with a system that says, hey, we can tell you exactly when it happened and where it was. And I, I just have to, we're kind of going off course here in line with what you may want to cover, Tim. But in uh, earlier last year, earlier this year, I was in Washington. I was at the Marriott Hotel having breakfast with somebody, with a couple. And I uh, told them what I did. And, and I said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm with search and rescue with a Coast Guard. I said, well, would it help you? To know exactly when somebody went overboard and exactly where it happened? Well, the answer is yes. Yeah. It actually yeah. saved somebody. 
and and yet they've failed to follow up on these proposals. They must have some serious uh, financial muscle behind them. These cruise lines. I, I'm presuming that they're they've got lobbyists and all kinds of people, uh, sort of you know, gumming up the works. Well, uh, in, in the three years uh, from 2008 to 2010, when our bill was introduced and we were lobbying. According to Dr. Klein, their combined lobbyist fees were $16 million. That's not counting what they're giving to the congressional people directly. So we were up against an organization spending millions, and ICV has no money. I mean, literally no money. Yeah. So we, we are up against those kinds of numbers. But they've done other things. Very smart. I give them credit. On one side, the other side, I'm going to give you the other side of it. They've been very effective in Washington. Every two months, they host a meeting with the FBI and Coast Guard. You know, buy them dinner and, and they, in theory, talk about uh, terrorist attacks or whatever. It's a secret meeting. Yeah. Well, I've said several times, the FBI or, host, or Coast Guard should host a meeting. But since they're regulating the cruise line industry... They shouldn't go to a meeting hosted by them. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a conflict sense, yeah. of interest. Yeah. And and uh, that has not fallen on uh, good ears, but I, I say it, I continue to say it, and they've built strong relationships. They hired the number three guy from the FBI. They hired the chief lobbyist from the FBI. They oh, hired God. other agents to go to work for them. They've hired Coast Guard people. The people, the top people at CLIA are Coast Guard. So not only do they spend the money, but they've manipulated the the regulatory system. Exactly, it's like Big Pharma and some of these other big uh, big industries. It's a revolving door of government and CEO type positions. Well, the, the uh, security industry and uh, the, the the industry learns how to manipulate the the regulators. But at the March hearing this year in the Senate held by uh, Senator Rockefeller. He really took this point on, uh, Tim. Yeah. And he said to the cruise line industry, you know, you use the services of 21 government agencies and you pay nothing in taxes to the government. So you, you're using the services of 21 agencies, but the cruise line industry, they put their corporations, carnivals in Panama, Royal Caribbeans in Liberia, they flag their ships in third world countries to avoid all taxes, all work rules, and yet without the government supporting them through these 21 agencies, they wouldn't be in business. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's just, it's just. I'm almost speechless here uh, as we get deeper into this. It's interesting <laughs> to to note that. You sort of touched on the idea that maybe Amy Bradley was kidnapped. It does seem like there's a preponderance of young women uh who are victims here uh, whether it's these rapes that happen on the ships or these disappearances and and you know the the, the whole idea of human trafficking is another sort of uh crime issue uh, and sex you know sex slave type uh stuff that that is sort of just now coming into public consciousness as well so you wonder well, if they, these they, things go hand in hand any single woman that goes on a cruise ship is a target uh they're a target to the crew members and and they're at risk. But you know another group that's at risk on a cruise ship? It's the miners. Yeah. We we did a Freedom of Information Act, got a year's supply of crimes, 
and where they indicated the age. 18% were minors. So people go on to a cruise ship with their families, turn them loose, or put them in the nursery or wherever it is, and you got all kinds of issues going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sexual issues, uh, pedophiles. But when you think that 18% of the crimes where they noted the age, Dr. Klein figures if if the age was shown on all the crime reports, it would be a much higher number than that. And uh, people go on there with a family vacation, turn the kids loose. Well, they, that's the worst thing they can do. Right, right. It's chilling in a sense, too, because these cruise lines, you know, they position themselves as like this paradise on the sea and this utopian world, uh, you know, on the ocean, and it's it really lulls people into a false sense of security uh, in a big way. Well, not only that, they're promoting unlimited drinks. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you try to open up a resort in this country and you say, okay, come to our resort, the door is closed for a week, we're going to offer unlimited drinks, there is no police force, and the workers are from a third world country, they wouldn't they wouldn't let them go in business. Yeah. And yet that's exactly the environment of a cruise ship, is that you have foreign workers, unlimited drinks, no police, and people let their guard down. So that if if you had a resort here and say, once you go in the door, you're there for a week, and, and all of these things are going on, well, they, they wouldn't stand for it. And yet they get on a cruise ship under the same environment, or worse environment, and assume it's safe because the cruise science say it's safe. Uh, what limited information uh, has been available shows that the sexual crime rate on a cruise ship is 50% greater than in the average American city. Say 50%? 50% greater. Oh, Jesus. And, and, and anywhere from 50 to 70% of the crimes are committed by crew members. Now, Tim, our legislation that we passed was designed to start to address that issue of of reported crimes. And and this is most significant. In the United States, if you call the local police and say, I've been robbed or whatever, whatever complaint that you make uh, at the local police station becomes a public record. Right. And, and that is known. You can, you can get the crimes reported on any location. Mm-hmm. It's public information. Well, the Cruise Line Safety and Security Act, the intention was it'd be exactly the same way. So for the first time, you would know how many crimes were on a cruise ship and what kind of crimes and what percent was crew members. And the well, difficult part is you got to rely on the cruise on the cruise industry to provide those numbers, and you know they're going to cook well, the books. Well, let's, let's assume they, they report all those numbers. What we found out last year when the bill was taking effect in the first quarter of last year, the FBI reported seven crimes on cruise ships. The second quarter, they reported six. It's it's a public uh, on a Coast Guard website. The third quarter, they reported none. <laughs> so I said, my goodness, now that that's not the intention of the bill. Yeah. So we did two things, Tim. In the past, we've gotten out of the Freedom of Information Act alleged crimes that were voluntarily reported for an entire year. It was in excess of 400. The Sun Sentinel, if you go on our website, they did the same thing for nine months, and they were were getting more than 100 every quarter. 
Yeah. So the first quarter when I only saw seven crimes, I said, gee, that's not right. So I asked for the alleged crimes for the first quarter of last year from the FBI under Freedom of Information Act. Same request I'd made, exactly the same in prior years. Guess what? That was in April of 2011. We're now in August of 2012. They've never complied with that Freedom of Information Act request. So what did we find out on, on the low reporting of crimes? We found out, uh, and this just was determined in June. First of all, we determined somebody had changed the law, the yeah. intention of the law. So uh, the Arizona Republic, a fellow named Robert Engel, um, you know, I was concerned about this and a lot of other compliance issues went to Senator Kerry's office and asked them the question, who changed the law? With, with seven words, Tim. Uh-huh. And the response was, the Coast Guard and FBI requested the change. Here's the very organization that's there to protect the public added seven little words that even lawyers didn't pick up on that made the reporting of the crimes, uh, they, they destroyed the, the entire reporting requirement. So instead of being like the United States, it's it's ludicrous. In the last 12 months, the second quarter just came up, this report has showed eight crimes total. (laughs) And and how did they do it? They added a little phrase that said all alleged crimes will be reported uh, on cases that are closed. Well, the FBI out of the hundreds of cases, has traditionally been only opening 10 to 15% of them and doing an investigation. The rest they just don't do anything with. Yeah. So you got 66 crimes that say were open last year, and if they don't close the files, there are no crimes. So it's taken, it's it's ludicrous. And if people go to our web start site and look at, uh, starting about June 10th, You'll see article after article after article from the media outraged at what's going on and to think that the FBI and Coast Guard, according to Kerry's office, were responsible or requested the change makes it even more bizarre. Now, I strongly suspect there was one beneficiary of the change. That was the cruise line industry. Of course, yeah. So it's hard for me to believe they were not involved in that change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Another, uh, just to sort of give people an idea even more of how extreme this stuff is, there's another story about a woman named Diane Brimble. She's found dead on the ship, and the family, they have to stay on board the ship for an additional day, additional few days, because this isn't like a plane where if someone dies on a plane, they land at the nearest airport. Uh, the, the, these people are essentially trapped on the on the ship, you know, until it goes to the next port. There's no sort of uh, there seems to be yep. no emergency. It, again, it goes back to this whole idea of like they don't want to scare the other passengers or they don't want to have it affect their PR, so they're just like, you know what, you're just one of a thousand people who are on the ship, uh, you know, lady or whatever. So well, there, there, you're gonna, there's you know, a lot more to the Diane Bribble story yeah. than that. Oh yeah, I know, but that was uh, that was the point that really sort of. Outraged me that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, so she was given extreme. a rape drug. 
and in theory raped by eight guys on the ship. And she died. And there was no inquiry for four years on her death. And the individuals that were involved never have been sentenced to anything. That, and in fact, Mark Brimble is on the executive committee of ICV mm-hmm. on our board, but we also have a separate chapter in Australia, uh, International Cruise Victims of Australia that Mark leads. And we're moving in Australia to get press. In fact, if people go on our website on the home page, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but uh, Dateline of Australia did a show earlier this year. It's the, did an excellent show right on our, it's right in the middle of our home page. And then 60 Minutes of Australia. Yeah. Literally flew to Phoenix and, and we did an interview and they did a terrific show. There was one on a news story this morning. It's the press, as you're doing, in getting this information out to outrage the public that action be taken and and we are getting that kind of press where the cruise lines are effective is in washington and in july they hosted a lunch for 85 congressmen uh they recently made a gift in the last uh, month of fifty thousand dollars to the ranking member of the senate transportation committee for projects in his state, the state of Maryland. They gave the Coast Guard $5,000 for a charity. That is where they have really spent their money. Yeah. But, but overall, uh, they've, they've put out some things recently that says that people like myself, I, let me, I'll use the term they used in their press release. Yeah. It says a handful of biased industry critics. I guess that would include me, continues to use the mainstream media to distort the cruise industry's strong strong record on reporting crimes. Well, you can't you can't manipulate the mainstream media. You know, I can't manipulate you. I can't manipulate any major network. We just tell them the truth. Exactly. Yeah. It's if any they're, they're the ones doing the manipulating. It's it's unbelievable. It's just well, they can't manipulate anymore because. Uh, we're here to, you know, build yeah, exactly. a library of information. Exactly. But anyway, the Diane Brimble story has really caught that part of the world, and actually, it's 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 another story that's gone all over the world. Uh, England is the Corian family. Australia's got the Brimble family. You know, the United States has got cases like my daughter in the Smith case and other cases. It takes those kinds of headline cases for the public to start to become aware of the issues. Now, I got like a sort of a two-parter, I guess you could say. Uh, I presume maybe because these all end up as sort of unsolved cases, that there's no legal liability for these cruise lines. Like, you can't turn around and sue them because, uh, you know, somebody disappeared on the ship or or even if somebody died, presumably. I mean, there's no uh, – is there any, like, negligence uh that work well, there? I mean, the, the cruise lines are, are sued, but it's a very tough uh, avenue to pursue. Yeah. I mean, in, you, number one, you got to go to Florida. Number two, we took legal action in Marion's case. And they their retort was they're under no investigation to do anything. Well, we ended up, in effect, uh, sued them for lying to us. So there there is legal action, but that's a process that, is is full of risk, very dangerous. Women are raped. The evidence isn't preserved. 
the cruise line said, well, it's a he said, she said, and they're difficult cases to pursue. And the cruise lines know that, and they know how to protect themselves from those cases. Yeah. And now, if you had independent police, <coughs> then you got a whole different story. Right, right. And uh, has all this publicity about these crimes on these ships, has that... Have you seen any sort of negative effect on the bottom line for them? Is, are the well, numbers dropping uh, on people going on? Obviously, the economy, I'm sure, plays a big hand in all this as well. I mean, who has the money to even go on a cruise nowadays? But but do, have you seen any sort of uh, effect from the publicity on the industry as far as, you know? Well, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you some observations. Mm-hmm. Starting a couple years ago, the cruise ships started moving their ships to Europe from the United States. And uh, we put out uh, an update last year. The number of ports that they left here in the United States, they say, we'll go to greener pastures in Europe. They're not aware of these issues. Well, number one, that European market isn't what they thought it was going to be. Uh, Royal Caribbean just pulled 25% of their ships out of, out of Europe. Uh, they had the Costa Concordia event in January. Uh, and th- that just opened up Pandora's box on the cruise line industry and the way the crew behaved and the, and the whole thing. So that in the second quarter of this year, Royal Caribbean, instead of making a hundred million as they did a year ago, lost a million dollars. Hmm. Uh, Carnival, instead of making hundreds of millions of dollars, made three million dollars. They oh, still wow. broke even. But it's having, it is having a financial effect, in my opinion, on the cruise ships. Now they're trying to go to Europe. We'll go to, we'll go to China. You know, it's like chasing a, a rabbit. Right, right. You know, we'll find some other place. But they're going to run out of places to send their ships because the, the press is picking it up worldwide and, uh, you know, they're, they're giving, they'll literally almost give the cruise away. For, for very little money, which sounds like a great deal, because they want you on there for the revenue from the alcohol and from gambling. Right. And the right. things they're selling on the ships. So that you can get uh, cruises for $200. Oh, God. Uh, cheap. Uh, because once that cruise ship leaves and it's empty, you can't refill the seat. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So they want people on there for, you know, to sell them alcohol. Uh, well, like floating casinos. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it's right. Scary, scary stuff. Well, the, speaking of scary, I mean, there's a story in there. Uh, I don't know if the person identified themselves, but the woman's daughter was offered a, a free cruise through Facebook, and it was yeah. really, really suspicious and that, uh, very spooky and sort of chilling. I guess talk a little bit about that because, again, it gets into this whole idea that this might be some kind of cover for human trafficking or God knows what. Yeah, well... One of the interesting things uh, in, in, in what we're doing are the various stories that we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a uh, most unusual story of a mother whose daughter won on Facebook a free cruise. In fact, the ticket was paid for, but the mother became suspicious. You know, yeah, here, here's a young, attractive, you know, you've got your photograph on Facebook. You know, she's an attractive uh, young woman. All of a sudden, she wins this free uh, Facebook uh, contest, free cruise, and uh, the ticket's paid for. 
But then the mother says, we, we need to understand this a little bit better. So she starts investigating it and can't come up with a person that's really behind this contest. And then she talks to the cruise lines and they say, if I were you, I wouldn't let your daughter go on that, on that cruise. Yeah. So who in the world is buying tickets for young women and, uh, to go on a cruise just out of the ge- generosity of their heart. And when they couldn't even check the individuals out, uh, fortunately she didn't do it. But I think it sends a warning to other people. Uh, a lot of young women would take that on a bet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you can only wonder how many have, how many, you know. I, I'm sure that many have. And then what happens to them? <laughs> You don't even want to think about it, really. You just don't. Uh, now, the, how about this one here with the Kenneth Williams? They're on the Carnival Cruise Line. The Carnival people on the ship, they stop in Jamaica, and they push this sort of uh, Carnival tour of Jamaica uh, thing and guarantee safety and all that. And then uh, when they're on the tour, there's just uh, this this crazy robbery. And, and, yeah. and just, it just stunning stuff. And again, it goes to, like I said earlier, this is a myriad of stuff that's going on here, folks. Not just murders and missing people, but crimes that suggest that, that this is orchestrated by people in, in a sense, some of this stuff. Yeah, well, uh, and, and it is. What people don't realize that the corporations, cruise line corporations have set themselves up. So uh, I'll give you another example. You've got a doctor in a cruise ship. Mm-hmm. Got a nice uniform on. Looks like the crew members are, you know, like one of the officers or crew members. He is an independent contractor and does not work for the cruise line. The reason they do that is that if something happens, uh, they're not responsible. You have to go after this individual doctor who, uh, God, he could be from India or wherever. So they they've made him an independent contractor. They've done the same on excursions that they promote and sell and might make. Uh, 40% commission on on selling these excursions, but when something happens, they say, well, it's an independent contractor. We're not responsible. In the case of this uh, Kenneth Williams, this guy was a former police officer, and uh, his tour bus was stopped, as I understand it, and, and they were robbed, and his nine-year-old daughter was traumatized when the uh, one of the individuals doing the crime put a pistol to her head. And and yet, uh, you know, nothing happens. The uh, cruise ships don't take responsibility, even though they're the ones that promoted it and got the Williams family and other families. Uh, we have a lot of snorkel, snorkeling type excursions. Yeah, yeah. And and we've got several of those where people have been lost. Uh, we've got some where they didn't count the number of people coming back that they left with, and and people have been laid out there and died, and they're not uh, they're not responsible for it. But something else which is most important that people do not realize that if you are involved in a, something on a ship and you die, the cruise lines there's a a law that was passed in 1920, which in effect says they have no responsibility even though they're at fault if you die as a result of an accident or something they did wrong on a cruise ship. Uh, now, that that's rather astounding. 
Yeah. If if you're injured, you might be able to take legal action against them. If you die, DOSHA, Death of the High Seas Act, prevents you from taking legal action other than burial expenses under two circumstances. One is that if you're retired or you're young. Now, what what's the uh, correlation between the two? They say your life has no economic value. So as a result, they owe you nothing other than maybe some burial expenses, even though they're at fault. Oh, can you imagine a cruise ship sinking? And because of DOSHA, and it's their fault, you can't take action because of the death of the High Seas Act? I, I And we, we did our best to put that in the bill. And the cruise lines fought us tooth and nail uh, because that would mean that they would be responsible. If something happens and people are accidentally killed and it's their fault, they would be responsible, which they should be. Right, right. Well, and like not. in the in in this Ken Williams story, you know, it's it's a, just to flesh it out a little bit more. You know, he after the event, uh, after the after the cruise, the family's completely traumatized by all this, and and Carnival Cruise is all apologetic until it comes time to to be responsible for for what happened, and then then it gets into a whole different ball game, and they're not interested in helping out with any of the sort of uh, therapeutic. Uh, treatments or anything for the for the kids and stuff like that. Yeah, well, yeah, his, I know his daughter was traumatized. He was traumatized, and uh, I mean, I, I told you earlier in Marion's story, you think they're working with you until you go to take action. Yeah, and then it swings the other way as far as it can swing, and they play hardball. Uh, they're they're lawyers and all of these things. Now they they've given the risk management a new. Uh, title. They're called um, uh, customer care representatives. They, <laughs> we get away from risk management. We'll call them a customer care representative. So a woman's been raped. So the customer care representative comes up and puts her arm around them. And the woman tells this woman what happened to her. Guess what's happening to that information? It's going to the lawyers for the cruise lines. Yeah. Yeah, at the woman's most vulnerable spot. Uh they're telling this person they think is there to help them, as we thought the person that was, we were working with that was there to help us, was really uh, getting information to give to the lawyers to limit the liability of the cruise lines. It's It makes you just, again, it just makes me angry just to hear all this. I can tell you, Kendall, I don't think I'll ever go on one of these <laughs> One of these cruises, I could. You, you really would have to twist my arm to to get me to go on one of these things because it, it it's scary. Well, it doesn't have to be scary. Yeah. Oh, I all, all we want is accountability that steps are being taken to protect the the safety of the passengers. And in the bill that we passed, we are finding more and more that the requirements put in the bill are being ignored by the regulators and not being followed up on and not reporting the crimes and not putting the man overboard systems in place. Uh, and, and frankly, that's um, disheartening. But they've built a culture over the years that's been very effective in, in the people that, that regulate them by hiring them uh, and, and having meetings every two months and that we think are conflict of interest, and it's a whole culture that's been successfully built up. But as the public becomes aware of this, and according to Clea's own statements, they are, because somehow 
I and others are manipulating the mainstream press, you know, which is which is a joke. Um, maybe maybe some of these things will swing in our direction, and I think they are swinging in our direction. But I, I can only tell you, it's a fight every day. And when we see wordings have been changed, changing the intention of a bill on reporting crimes, it makes us angry. Oh, and, rightfully so. And, and and how somebody could go in, whether it's the FBI and Coast Guard has sent it off, Kerry has said, or the cruise line industry, uh, clearly not in the interest of the public, but in the interest of the cruise lines. It's, it's just... Uh... Again, I'm, I'm left speechless by a lot of this material because you just, it, it, it's such an uphill battle. This is such a, a, a monolithic industry. To, uh, you know, hats off to the international cruise victims for, for continuing to fight them uh, on all this stuff. I, another story in the on the website that really stood out to me sort of gives you an idea of, as you kind of said, the culture aboard these ships as well. Uh, this guy, David Gabriel... He's there with like his nine-year-old son, right. his whole family, and uh, some person, some random uh, nefarious person, is following him and his son around. And then eventually, he gets separated from his son, and he sees his son with this with this uh, person, this this uh, abductor. And he, you know, he he punches the guy, he holds him down. Eventually, he can't can't wait any longer for for help to come. And then when it gets reported to the ship. Uh, they throw him off the ship. Yeah, right. In the middle of nowhere. I mean, his family's on the ship. He's given five minutes notice to get off the ship, uh, and left. I mean, that, that, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, who would do that? It, it, it just goes to this whole idea that, you know, in their eyes, you're a statistic. And they need to get you out of there as fast as as possible, or, or they have to keep this this thing moving. In a sense, that's another thing kind of stood out from the from the stories about the people with the scuba who disappeared during the scuba trips. It's like, hey, if they don't turn up in time for us when we leave, then that's their problem. That's well, like their I mean, attitude. I mean, if you're taking a scuba trip and you take sixteen people out, you better make sure you take sixteen people back. <laughs> right, right. And the scary part is if they come back with 15 people, they don't care. They just go on to the next stop, that, you know, and they write it off yeah. to, oh, well, maybe they like, you know, maybe they fell in love with Jamaica and ran away there. It's like, come on, cut the crap. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting industry how they've separated themselves from the excursions, from the medical care, and so many of the things that they do. Uh, to avoid liability instead of accepting liability. And if you screw up, you screw up and you accept responsibility for it. Uh, that, uh, that's a lesson the industry is, is, uh, learning very slowly. Yeah. Uh, but more and more people are becoming aware of it. And, and we appreciate you're doing a show on, on the subject because you're going to reach people. Uh, every time we do something, we reach people. And uh, hopefully it'll it'll be beneficiary. Absolutely. Now, one of the people who it's not necessarily a story, but he sort of uh, lends his support to the to the whole movement here is Michael Groves. He's a former deck uh-huh. officer on one of these cruise ships. Now, have you? Uh-huh. He says in his in his uh, you know uh, I guess you could say su- supportive post that he can't really talk about anything, which is kind of frightening in and of itself. You wonder what kind of what kind of restrictions are placed on these folks. But have you heard much 
you know, in the way of like off the record, you know, at the bar talk from people who have worked on these cruise ships as to really how pervasive this problem is. Well, we we have on our board, on our executive committee, the former head of security for Princess Cruise Lines. These are the kinds of talents that have come to us. And Michael was a security officer on a cruise ship. So they're they're bringing us a story that they have a unique perspective on. And uh, yeah, one of our members who is in England has told the story how he's tried to seal a, a, a crime scene. Somebody's been raped or something. And they go in the next day and the room's been scrubbed by the cruise lines. You know, the very thing he asked them not to do. And uh, it's a story that uh, happens over and over and over. And in the case of Michael Groves, he was injured uh, by a pirate attack. And, and that, that brings up an interesting uh, another story as part of our legislation. Uh-huh. All ships, if you read the bill, are required to add an acoustical sound device. Now, that's what was on Michael Groves' ship. And that device allows you to focus a sound at an approaching pirate ship, let's yep. say. Yeah, vessel. Yeah, vessel, and it drives, the sound drives them away. It's like sending a laser. Yeah. So the bill required that to be added on all cruise ships. Well, guess what? There was some wording added by somebody, and and I'll give you about two guesses who it was, and the first one probably wouldn't count, that if the Coast Guard determines that uh, they're in a high-risk area, well, on the surface, that you know, you got to put it on if you're in a high-risk area. Well, I noticed uh, earlier this year the Coast Guard wasn't requiring it be put on a cruise ship, and I said, well, why not? I mean, New York Harbor is a high-risk area. You know, you got the World Trade Center. Well, they said that's top secret. Uh, we can't tell you what our definition of high risk is. Well, later on in another meeting, they admitted they don't count terrorism as high risk. <laughs> So whoever put that word in knew that. So it nullified the provision. So that cruise ships, instead of having this protection against a terrorist attack, are not required to put it on. And it's not an expensive piece of equipment. It costs 35000 maybe for one piece. Maybe you need three of them on a ship. It's, it's a peanut item. And that's what girls use to drive away the uh, pirates that attack his cruise ship. I, uh, I I don't even know why. See, why would they not even want them then? If they're so, if it's not expensive and it, it you know, uh, hey, I, you know, so you'll have to ask them that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just. I mean, logic would say right. Uh, our our board member, who is head of security for Princess Cruise Lines, required that to be put on cruise ships on on Princess cruise ships. And that saved that particular cruise ship. Uh, and, and this guy, if you go on our website, you'll see a book that he's published, uh, right on the front page. He is a real security expert. It just seems like it's a penny wise and pound foolish not to re- have that on voluntarily. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there's so many good reasons to have it. I can't understand why, what their reasoning is not to have it. Well, so, probably does it cost twenty five, thirty thousand dollars? <laughs> I guess. I guess if you're only making three million in a year, then I guess uh, 
if you got to outfit all those ships, maybe it does cut into the bottom line. But Yeah, well, there's an interesting story I just got this morning that they've just determined that for the last uh, year or so, uh, if I interpret these uh, stories right, the Russians had a sub going around the Caribbean, which obviously a, a cruise ship. In fact, if you look at my Senate testimony, which is on our website, you'll find the last eight pages deals with the subject of terrorism as a risk to a cruise ship. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a perfect risk. Uh, they're, they're big. You can take down thousands of people at one time, and you don't have to be a submarine to do it. You can be a, a rubber boat that comes up and attaches an explosive to the ship. Right, right. Yeah, well, you know, those ships were, those American ships were attacked in Yemen uh, before 9-11, so it's not like uh, these crazies haven't come up with these kind of ideas before. It's, it's amazing <laughs> that it hasn't happened yet, you know, given how lax all the security is. Yeah, well, it, it will happen. Uh, anything that can happen will eventually happen, uh, I think. I, I don't want it to happen, and let's hope it doesn't happen. And let's hope they take some steps, like putting these devices on their ships, to help prevent it from happening, but to ignore it and change a provision in a bill so you don't have to do it is is beyond uh, reason in my mind. Right, right. And just to take people into the into the sort of uh, into the now moment, if you will, uh, let's say, like for instance, you and I are on the deck of one of these ships, and I go overboard. You know, what's the I guess what's the standard operating procedure, and then what really happens? Because it stands to reason I don't know how fast these ships are going, but if I go overboard, by the time you can get to anybody to stop the ship, it's already it's already gone quite a distance anyway. Well, the the answer is the best chance you possibly have is you know exactly when it happens and exactly where it is. Mm-hmm. Then you can take action, and that's what companies are proposed that they have systems to do. Right, but so, but so oftentimes they'll look eight hours for somebody on that ship before they even call the FBR, the Coast Guard, to fly out. And and guess who pays the Coast Guard to go out and search for these people? It's the taxpayers, right? Not the cruise lines. But uh, your your best hope is you know exactly when it happens and where it happens. Then you might have a chance. Other than that, sending an airplane out. The fly of the Caribbean is is just wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars because they never find them. Right, right. And the scary part is, you know, in this example I just used, it's you and me standing there. If you're by yourself and you go overboard, forget it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if you're standing there, you might have a chance that they throw you a life raft or something and, and are able to, uh, you know, immediately take action. you got a better chance. But if you're alone and they don't know it, uh, your chances are slim and none. And and one other thing I, I might just mention is that people going overboard, so oftentimes alcohol is, a, is an issue. Yeah. Uh, we have a Lindsay O'Brien on our website, girl from Ireland. She was a family, had four daughters, and her family took this cruise. The girl was 15 years old. In one hour, they gave her 10 drinks. Ah. She went to the railing, threw up, and fell overboard, and that was it. My God! And it, and and so if now we sort of have been talking about how these people are the victims here are treated as a statistic. So let's go back to that scenario we're talking about. You and me, we're on the deck. I fall over. You run and get help. 
what is their reaction? Do they stop the ship? Do they turn around? Do they call well, they out? Like, how does it work? Yeah, they, they should immediately, I think there's even IMO regulations saying they should stop that ship immediately and, and go back and look for the party. I think there are regulations. And once in a while they will find somebody. If, if those, if you have the perfect situation of somebody going overboard, somebody seeing it, and there's immediate notification. But I also know of other cases, uh, in the Corian family. Uh, it's my understanding that when they called it in that she was missing, they gave the Coast Guard the wrong coordinates. So they were looking at some place 40 miles away from where the ship was. Oh my God. You know, I, I can't verify that, but, uh, I'm under that impression and talking with Mike. And from my understanding, from these, from the articles I've read and from the stories I've read and the stuff I've looked at on the ICV website, is that even if they have this, this, you know, closed circuit monitoring of the ship, it, it, there, there aren't people actually watching it. No. They only go back and look at it later if they need to. It's not like, it's not like a, a security situation where there's someone tasked with watching all the time so they can see somebody go overboard. No, you're, you're exactly right. They they don't monitor the the uh, CTVs, uh, CCTVs, and only later on do they go back and take a look at the various videos to try and figure out if they've got something showing somebody going overboard. Now, the, the one thing that will bother me the rest of my life on Marion's case is why did they lie to us that there was no video? And, and only admitted three years later. Now, now if they, if they, as I said earlier in this interview, if there was a video and, and there were videos and it showed something happening, then that's it. I mean, that, that, uh, a family wants closure. Right. And, and when they say, well, there's no video, we don't know what happened. My goodness. That just, you know, uh, leaves you with a, with a nightmare you never can get past. Right, right. And, you know, not to get too dark here, but it stands to reason that there's something on that video they didn't want you to see or didn't want to admit to or didn't want to see the light of day. Well, that's the only conclusion you could come to. Right. Oh, uh, my goodness. Is there was something there, if there's something there that works to the advantage, you'll get the video. If it doesn't work to the advantage, they say they don't have it. Uh, that, that's just my personal experience. Oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just aghast at this. I really am. It's just, uh, it is really something else. I can, I can imagine, uh, the stories you hear and, and just, just being in this realm, uh, for so long. I can't imagine, uh, how you can stomach this. When a new victim calls, they want to share their story and we want to listen to their story. But I, I must admit, by the time they get done, I'm whipped. No. But it's the same, I'm hearing the same story over and over, whether it's a rape, uh, somebody going overboard, there's no victim, no answers. That, that's probably one of the more effective things we've done with our site. Uh, and it's not a fancy website. It's got a lot of material on it. Oh, it's got a tons of, tons of stuff. Yeah. Is that we've posted these victim stories and, and they're powerful stories, each one of them. And I would say more than half of the victims that we have don't post their stories. You know, I've never gone through and counted how many posts. Some people just, woman's rape, she doesn't want to post it. Sometimes we'll post it as a John Jane Doe or something like that. 
but they they don't want to you know go public with the story, so we don't post it. But uh, when people go on there and they see these various stories and the various things that have happened, uh, that's a powerful message. Right, right, right. And and another thing you've uh, kind of mentioned it, and it comes up over and over again in these stories is uh. You know, we've talked about people going overboard. We've talked about people missing. We've talked about mysterious deaths. A lot of uh, druggings that seem to happen on these ships, too. So you can only imagine. We talked about the lawlessness of these places, the excessive alcohol. You can only imagine what, what kind of uh, drugs are floating around on these ships. Well, there's a story out in the last week, that, uh, and I... It's being posted. I don't know if it's posted yet. I, I think it may be. Is this the Disney uh, cocaine yeah, story? Yeah, the, the Disney story. My goodness, of all places to be having uh, drug parties going on, that's the worst place. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're not unique. What's I'm that? Good, I, the Disney chips. Oh, right. You're saying just because it's Disney doesn't mean it's any safer than Carnival or... Yeah, they're all... I, I, yeah, I, I think... And there's been some articles... There was one done by a writer who actually got into the crew area and did a uh, story. There was posted in a national magazine of all the things that are going down in the crew area, you know, from sex parties to drinking, the open bar, uh, you know, all of these things. And that's a world that the passenger never sees. Right, right. And and getting to the Costa Concordia, uh, one of the roles the captain plays on a cruise ship is not driving the cruise ship. It's not like an airline pilot driving an airline. He's there to socialize with, with the passengers and have dinner with them, have drinks with them. Well, an airline pilot that's flying a 747 across the ocean, if he had a drink 24 hours before the plane left, they'd put him in jail. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's, here's the uh, captain. He's got a young girlfriend. You know, drinking at dinner and charges the lives of 4,000 people. No wonder he had a rock. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, you touched on sort of also that, that, that world underneath the ship, in the bowels of the ship. It's like a whole, I mean, we talk about it's like a city on the sea. You can only imagine that there's sort of a little, a subsection or a subcity, if you will, beneath the ship where the crew is. And you can only imagine what goes on down there. And, and you, and, and I mean, yeah, again, we talked about these, these, some of these people have been on these ships for like years. So, it, it's just a whole nother world. And I, I can only imagine that there's a sort of a, this, there's got to be a certain sense of separation between the crew and, and the passengers and almost a disdainfulness in sense, I bet, from some of these well, folks. I, yeah. They're, they're third world countries. Uh, what are they going to do? I mean, they're on there seven days a week, week after week. Uh, you know, and if you had any tendency to alcohol or drugs, you, you got to do something to entertain themselves. And, and I, I'm not saying that's what they should be doing, but there's those those areas should be monitored. There, there's an area that should be monitored by independent police, right? Because if the ship gets into trouble, and you got, you know, I read one article, I can't verify it, that uh, at any given time, 40 percent of the crews is drunk. <laughs> you know, I, I don't like to say things. It, it was out of an article, so I, I'm just going to say that's the way I recall that article. But, you know, that's their entertainment at night. Yeah. you got an open bar, cheap drinks. you got to do something. And and there should be at least 
independent people down there watching what's going on. Because they, they, the crew is in the Costa Concordia. When that ship got in trouble, the crew was first to go. Exactly. Yeah. They were they were worried about themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know they're like I said. I mean, they're on these ships year round practically, and the and and the passengers are just sort of uh, passing through. This it's it's very sort of territorial in a in a weird way. You know, it's very interesting in that in that. Yeah, well, it's a different way of life. That that's for sure. That's for sure. I've heard stories too. Uh, I'm sure you've sort of heard these too. Uh, and I don't know. I, I can't speak to the specifics of it, but I've I've seen like on shows like Dateline and stuff where these couples go on cruises and the and, you know and the wife will go missing or she, they'll say she went overboard or something and and it's it just they these shows always kind of make it out that the spouse did it, whether they did it or not is open to yeah. conjecture well, and stuff. But it seems like there's an also there's a, there's a whole nother thing going on here where it could be like. Hey, instead of taking out a hit on my wife, I'm going to take her on this Disney cruise and push her overboard, and they're never going to... Yeah, well, Chris, Chris Shea, who really started the first hearing, said it's the perfect place to commit a crime on a cruise ship. Yeah. I mean, if you want to do somebody in, that's the perfect place to do it. Somebody disappears, and, and there's just a lot of those cases. There's a girl in, um, in uh, Canada that went on a two-day cruise and just vanished and she was with a boyfriend that they were in a fight i mean there, there's all kinds of those cases right a woman named mindy jordan went missing within the first day and she was with a boyfriend that uh the relationship was not good and i'm not saying he he did anything but uh there's suspicions raised by you know certain members of the family that things happened so anyway yeah the scary part is you, you know you can't you can't say whether you can't say that he did anything, but there, you, you can say that there's been no proper investigation. Right. That's the Absolutely. that's the difficult part of it all. Right. Two things kind of came into my head. Uh, you know, like we said, if if not for people, the family members of these victims and stuff, there's there's probably countless other people that have gone missing or died or or been victim of these crimes that don't get reported. And oh, again, absolutely. You know, you get the crew. I can't even imagine the. If they're this callous with you and, and, and the other victims of, of these crimes, can you I, can you imagine, you know, say a crew member goes missing or dies, I, I, I can't even imagine that, that they even put much thought or effort into into getting to the bottom of those situations. I, I, my, my reaction is I would tend to agree with that. And we have stories of, of crew members. Uh, we have a gentleman in Italy that went missing, and his sisters made major efforts. There's one in, in Brazil where they finally determined the girl was murdered, but I don't think anything's ever happened to anybody. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a whole different culture. Well, we've, we've talked about all this, this myriad of problems. So I guess, and, and you said, you know, when you guys took this to Congress, you brought solutions. So, you know, what can and needs to be done to, to really improve or solve this, this whole issue? Well, and we really need the public support on this, mm-hmm. is that we have passed legislation in Washington, which is a major step forward. The challenge we face is having it that the actions be taken in line with the law. Right. And that's where people can communicate uh, with their congressional people, uh, and and we we are communicating. But when the when Congress knows that the public expects these things to happen it's not pushed
restaurant on the table, regardless of what uh, the cruise lines may be doing to support their position in Washington. So we need that help. Number two, our bill only protects a U.S. citizen coming or leaving the United States. So if they go to the Mediterranean and they take a cruise, they're not covered at all under the law. And our goal is that these laws need to be put in place worldwide. Mm-hmm. And and we need resources to do that. Yeah. I, I, we've been to Europe twice this year. Uh, I actually have an invitation to a meeting uh, in September I should go to, but there's costs involved with all of this. So financial uh, help uh, to ICV, uh, uh, whether it's a small amount or whatever, just would be invaluable to us as we move this ball forward. But it's a it's an issue of worldwide crime that has never been addressed properly. Right. And and to start to address that, we are doing that. We are starting to address it. But we need the support of of your listeners, uh, and we need the support of of congressional people that your listeners can communicate with. If this show goes overseas, uh, Victim Support of Europe has taken this on as a project. Victim Support of the U.K., is deeply involved, and we are moving the process. Actually, it's amazing how far we've come, but it's a matter of telling the story to to more and more people, and and the ultimate effect it'll have on the cruise industry if these things don't take place. Right, right. Now you've mentioned here over the course of the interview that these ships don't have any sort of independent uh, oversight or police force. Uh, you know, is that a possibility? Or is Absolutely. that just something that, that it, it's going to take literally an act of Congress to have done? I mean, well, it'll we need like air marshal type people on these. It, it'll take an act of, of the UN. And the UN has a division called the International Maritime Organization in London. And mm-hmm. I was there in May. And we have made our first visit there and, and had a presentation. And they were, they were shocked at the issue of crime on cruise ships. I mean, they're worried about how the ship is built, but not about the passengers. Right. So there is a division of the UN, the World Society of Victimologists, which is the top victim uh, organization uh, professionals in the world, has come out supporting efforts on our part to to have uh, the uh, International Maritime Organization take international steps to put uh, in place regulations to protect the citizens of all countries. Uh, it shouldn't make a difference to somebody getting on a cruise ship, whether they're from Italy or the United States or wherever they're from. Mm-hmm. They should be assured protection. And and the third world countries where these ships are flagged has been a joke. Yeah. And uh, you do have one section on your website I want to highlight before we let you go here, and that's the don't snooze before you cruise. This is tips for people going on cruises because we've talked a lot about what the government and, you know, the law enforcement agencies need to do. But what can everyday people do, aside from not even going on these cruises, but if they're going to go on a cruise, what should they be aware of? And, and you know, any sort of information we can get to them would obviously help try and prevent future incidents. Yeah, well, if they go on our, on our website, they can go on the right-hand column and see the uh, uh, the warnings of issues they need to be aware of. And the, and the one point I want to make, mm-hmm. as a result of the law, 
that's been passed in the United States, and I assume probably most of your audience is American. Yeah. They now have rights that they didn't have. They have the right to call the FBI on a confidential basis from the cruise ship to report the crime and not go through the security of the cruise ship. They have the right to call a victim's organization, independent from the cruise ship in the United States. They have the right to contact a lawyer. They have the same rights that if a crime occurred here in the United States, you would have. You could go to directly to the police. You don't go through an intermediary. Right, right. Uh, and, and they're a support organization, and you'd get a lawyer. So they have those rights today that uh, they can exercise. But they have to be well aware of the fact that they can't assume uh, that everything's going to go great uh, on a cruise ship and turn their kids loose. You know, you got the issue of alcohol and et cetera. And if they're on a ship that is not coming in or out of the United States, they only have the rights to take action by a third world country, and that is not satisfactory. Absolutely not. I think the two big takeaways here for folks who would be going on these cruises is always be aware, you know, be on guard, folks, because this is not as safe as you may think. And the other thing is really I would say just don't rely on or trust the uh, the cruise ship company. Uh, don't put your safety in their hands. I think that's the two things that, uh, yeah, and, that are the big takeaway. And to operate in teams and not go out on your own, that's where you really can get in trouble. Yeah. Ultimately, where where are you and the, and the ICV going from here and into the future? Further attempts to obviously get the word out about this and 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 more legislation. Well, number one is to get the uh, regulations working here in the United States in line with the bill that was passed. Right, and that's turning to be a more difficult issue than I thought. You think you pass a bill, but are, uh, and and you've done it all. You. That's only the beginning. Then you have to work with the, the enforcers to take the necessary action. And and there are fines that uh, if cruise lines don't do certain things, that they should be fined. And I read something on an editorial in the New York Times. It said a law without fines is not a law if there's no penalties yeah. for, for not doing the right thing. But the second thing is is that we are truly moving this message around the world. And, and actually have made a significant uh, progress just in the last year. It was only after we got the U.S. bill passed. But we need your friends that may be listening to this in other countries to help support us in these efforts as we try to get the laws put in place and the protection around the world. The ideal item, and you mentioned this, if you go to our website, to the community tab, and you click on that, you'll go to a page that shows that independent security, how it can be set up on a cruise ship. And and that's the ultimate, uh, potentially ultimate item that would really be helpful. Right, right. So when things happen, somebody is there to protect your interest and not the interest of the cruise lines. Exactly, exactly. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to call it a day here, Kendall, because uh, – uh, you know, you got to get going. We've already talked at length about this, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. The time has flown by. You know, I, I actually am kind of hastened to say I enjoyed it because I'm going to hang up the phone and sort of still be disgruntled about this cruise ship industry. But I can't thank you enough for your yeoman's work 
in getting the word out, you and all the folks at the International Cruise Victims Organization. Up until a few years ago, the lawlessness of these cruise ships was really so frighteningly underreported. And I think that the work that you guys are doing are not just going to make it safer for people in the future, but have already made it a lot safer for people who have gone on cruises already and know about the potential dangers there. So, I mean, you're doing a tremendous service, and I can only hope that in the long run you uh, you win this fight against these, these cruise ships to be more accountable for themselves and, and to be more responsible for the for the people that are paying to go on these trips. Uh, and like I said, I, I can't thank you enough, and I can't give you enough kudos for your tireless work, uh, and not only getting the word out, but but getting to the bottom of all this. So well, thank Tim, you. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I would just say that we've done it with no paid staff, with just volunteers, but volunteers with a passion. And uh, any support your listeners can offer us uh, is obviously uh, most helpful. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for all the time, and uh, thanks again for coming on the show. And let's keep in touch, and uh, you know, keep on this story. Yep. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Kendall Carver for coming on the show, giving us so much time, and for providing so much insight into this crime wave on the high seas. For more information on the International Cruise Victims Organization, check out the website www.internationalcruisevictims.org. Pretty simple, all one word, International Cruise Victims. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we've got three emails here, so let's just dive on into the mailbag. First one comes from Chris, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I want to tell you how much I enjoyed the Neil Arnold interview. I would not be surprised if some of your listeners have a problem with some of Arnold's opinions, so I wanted to weigh in and tell you that I thought it was great. I also want to suggest that you get Alan Greenfield on at some point. I have heard a few podcasts with him, and he seems like a fascinating guy, so I would love to hear him on your show. Thanks for the hard work. Cheers, Chris. Thank you for writing in, Chris. I appreciate the props on the Neil Arnold interview. Thankfully, we did not get any negative feedback to what Neil had to say. Maybe that's a testament to the open-minded nature of the BOA Audio listeners in that they gave serious consideration to the possibility that many of these monsters in the world of cryptozoology are actually mind projections and tulpas. We have to definitely consider the possibility that the entire UFO phenomenon is some kind of mental projection. If we don't, I think we're just doing a disservice to getting to the bottom of the UFO enigma. I confess here that I do not know much at all about Alan Greenfield, but I will check out his stuff, and if it sounds like a good fit for BOA Audio, I will definitely put him on the to-interview list for a future edition of BOA Audio. Once again, thanks for your props about the program, Chris, and thank you for your guest suggestion as well. Next email comes from Joel. No hometown listed, here's what he has to say. I was wondering if you could please activate my request for an account on the US of E forums. I'd like to state my gratitude for your Herculean efforts in putting out the BOA audio podcasts. They have gotten me through many a dreary workday, and the good parade is just so funny and fun. Unfortunately, I unwisely had been listening to it around my two-and-a-half-year-old, 
and you may be proud to know that you have taught him the word fucking. I laughed. My wife did not. Perhaps Jeremy warned you about Mr. Owl on the Paratopia forums with my rants about woodpeckers. I actually was going to suggest a crypto show about the ivory-billed woodpecker to you, as you seem to be a nature boy like myself. The quote-unquote rediscovery of this thought-to-be extinct bird has sparked incredible controversy in ornithological and zoologist circles. The story is featured on Netflix in the documentary Ghost Bird. I know it sounds stupid, but I thought it could be the meat-eating horses of Season 7, which is probably my favorite episode of Season 6. Kudos to you. Sincerely, Joel. Thank you for writing in, Joel. Much appreciated. Folks will be happy to know that I did activate Joel's account at the US of E, the official BOA forum. I am terrible at activating those requests because we get inundated with spam accounts. And then I have to sort through the spam accounts and figure out who's spam and who's real. We had a pretty good system going, but sometimes folks have to wait a couple weeks to get activated. So if you have registered for the forums and your account has not been activated in quite some time or you're still waiting on it, definitely send me an email so I know you're a real person and not a bot, and I will activate your account as soon as possible. Now, with regards to my accidental teaching of your two-and-a-half-year-old, the uh, F-word, a thousand apologies, of course, to your wife. We've had this conversation here at the end of the program before. I just don't think the BOA audio is appropriate for toddlers to be listening to and young children, although I've tried to curb my swearing. I think you'll notice here in this episode with Kendall Carver there was not a single expletive in the entire two hours plus. So I'm doing a pretty good job on that. And your point here about all this kind of raises another issue. And if you got youngsters listening, get them out of the room, folks. Because uh, what put me off about last week's show with Neil Arnold is he just pretty much obliterated poor Santa Claus. And I thought about putting a warning in at the beginning of the show that, it was not suitable for young children, but I ended up not doing that, and I, I'm hopeful that the uh, mythos of Santa Claus was not ruined for any young BOA Audio listeners who may have tuned into the Neil Arnold episode. And finally, thank you for this tip on the documentary Ghost Bird. I will definitely look into it. Uh, I'll be honest, I certainly would have been very skeptical if someone suggested an ivory-billed woodpecker edition of the program, but since you seem to suggest that there is quite a rich array of discussion surrounding this whole thing, it's definitely something I'm going to check out. I don't know if it could be the meat-eating horses edition of the program for Season 7, but it certainly would be one for the books if we could really get a full episode out of the ghost bird controversy. My only concern is that it's sometimes difficult to track down people who are behind films. Authors and website publishers are easier to track down. Filmmakers sometimes are a little bit harder to get a hold of and get on the program. I've been trying to get the guy behind the Toynbee Tiles film on BOA Audio for quite some time and still can't get a hold of him, so... Getting the makers of Ghostbird on the show may prove to be just as difficult a challenge. 
but I will certainly look into it, and I will definitely watch the film, because it sounds interesting, and we'll try to get a hold of the folks behind Ghostbird and see if we can get them on the program. So, thank you for writing in, Joel. Once again, sorry about exposing your child to my potty mouth. Sorry for keeping you waiting to get onto the forum, and thank you for the guest suggestion. Final email comes from Stephen in Arlington, Texas, and here's what he has to say. Hey dude, I'm just a BOA listener from Texas. I cannot in good conscience listen to another BOA MP3 without sending along a check. Keep up the good work. You mentioned where to send checks at the end of each episode. I'm originally from Chelmsford myself. Great breaking news from Bruce Rucks. Best, Stephen in Arlington, Texas. Thank you for writing in, Stephen, and tremendous thanks for your donation to Banal of America. I will be honest with folks, it has been a very tight six weeks here at BOA HQ. I ended up having more expenses than I anticipated here this summer and have really been just getting by for the last few weeks. Hopefully that's going to turn around here as the fall begins because I've got some good stuff lined up business-wise here in the autumn. But once again, I want to thank Stephen and, of course, all the other folks who have donated to Banal of America this summer and this year and in the past in general. Thank you, folks, for helping keep BOA in the black so we can continue providing quality programs to all of you. Stephen, if you're ever back in the Chelmsford area, shoot me a line. I'd be happy to go out and grab a beer or three and discuss the crazy world of the paranormal. And on that note, we pull the strings and close up the BOA Audio Listener Feedback Mailbag for this week. Big, big thanks to Stephen, Joel, and Chris for writing in. And if you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, there are a myriad of ways for you to participate. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of america.com and click the contact button. Or while you're there, click the forum button and that will bring you to the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of great discussion going on there with regards to BOA audio as well as the paranormal and pop culture. We have got a fantastic exchange happening with regards to the Neil Arnold interview. Lengthy posts discussing a variety of aspects surrounding the Neil Arnold episode happening at the forum right this very minute. So if you want to join in on that conversation, head on over to the BOA forum. And, of course, we are a part of Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you will find my profiles on those sites. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And if you want additional content from Banal of America, like us on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America, you'll find our page, like us, and you'll be given access to a variety of other stuff 
from BOA. Up next, let's thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Coming up at the website in the next few days will be an all-new Trickster's Realm from Regan Lee and the long-awaited return of Grey Matters from Leslie. So head on over to Banal of America for those pieces as well as new stuff from the rest of the outstanding BOA staff. Banal of America, make it a part of your search for esoteric enlightenment and entertainment. Now comes the time in the program where I rip off a piece of cardboard, scrawl a message on it, and ask you to make a donation to the BOA franchise. You've already heard me waxing poetic about how it has been a very financially tight month at Benal of America, so any donations that folks could make would be greatly appreciated. There are two ways in which you can help out. You can head on over to Benal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail, there's also a way to do that as well. You can mail your donations to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. The complete address can be found at Benal of America, right underneath the PayPal button. And if you send us a donation via snail mail, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, because my bank is anal and they will not cash those donations. And please include some form of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for helping BOA. As always, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of the program, BOA Audio welcomes doctoral candidate Robbie Graham, who joins us for a discussion on his ongoing research into the portrayal of UFOs in film and television, as well as how pervasive government influence over this content has been over the years. If you are a fan of quality UFO research, then there's a very good chance that you are already familiar with Robbie's outstanding website, Silver Screen Saucers, which contains a wealth of information on UFO films and TV shows, and insights into what really may be going on behind the scenes as these programs and movies are made. I have a very good feeling that the BOA audio listeners will enjoy this edition of the program quite a bit, because there was really a great connection there between Robbie and I. We're about the same age, we have similar perspectives on the UFO phenomenon, and I wanted to go into the conversation not necessarily throwing a variety of films and TV shows at Robbie Graham and then having him just recite his perspective on these various mediums. I wanted to get behind the whole thing. I really wanted to dig into the overall view of this phenomenon 
of UFO films and TV shows. And that's what we did in this conversation. As you'll hear Robbie say during the program, he gets into a whole realm of discussion that he has really never done on any program before. So that's something that I think folks will really enjoy quite a bit. That's Robbie Graham talking about his research into UFOs in film and television on the next edition of BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Kendall Carver for coming on the show. Check out the website, internationalcruisevictims.org. Big thanks to Chris, Joel, and Stephen for joining us in BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the people who have stuck around since the very beginning and the folks who have just discovered the show recently. You guys are the best. Thank you for your support of the program. Thank you for spreading the word about this little underground esoteric audio freak show that is BOA Audio. And, of course, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.